0: Welcome to OK Computer. I am Dan Nathan. We have a big show for you today. I have Dan Ives in the studio with me. He is a managing director and senior equity research analyst covering technology sector. You've been at Wedbush Security since 2018. Dan, welcome to OK Computer. Great to be here. And it wouldn't be OK Computer without CNBC's Tech Check host. That would be Deirdre Brosa. I call her Debo. And she knows Dan Ives very well. Debo, welcome.
1: Thanks for having me again. And I'm so thrilled that Dan Ives is here. Tech Check regular, and you can call me And okay, computer regular now too, by the way.
0: We're loving that. The feedback we're getting from our listeners is fantastic too. So Debo, we really appreciate you making the time um, for us. And also guys, after our conversation here, stick around. I have my friend, David Steinberg, who is the co-founder and CEO of Zeta Global. We talk about how he's been using AI for years in his marketing cloud. And we talk about the current banking crisis and a whole host of other things. So stick around for that. But Dan, Let's talk about this. You had a post out, I guess it's called a research note, and you're talking about this kind of flight to safety that we've seen in mega cap tech, and really the NASDAQ has just exploded over the last couple of weeks when we know that obviously there's been some concern about the banking sector, and we've seen bank stocks, some go to zero, and others just kind of down in sympathy, and that's gonna kind of wait on, I guess, the S&P 500, but we've seen this movement into mega cap tech. Talk to me about what's going on, what you're seeing, and how much longer this trade might be on, and, and, and again, You know, uh, I'm the guy, not contrarian for contrarian's sake. I kind of feel like some of the banking sector issues are going to work its way into the tech sector when we just talk about what is on the other side of this crisis. Is it a slower economy? We're starting to see layoffs continue. Debo, you were on Fast Money earlier this week and Tech Check All Week talking about Amazon again coming back for more layoffs. I just kind of feel like it's going to work its way back into the tech sector. But talk to me about your theme right here and how long you think it's going to kind of
2: last. As a theme, Just to give you an example, I mean, doing this since late 90s, I mean, there's a lot of portfolio managers that I thought they were just human voicemails. And like when they're calling you on the weekend, telling you to call, it just shows the type of environment that we're in. I think from my perspective, and there's sort of three factors that have happened here in Big Cap Tech. One, the decks are cleared. In terms of guidance, I think you've got more scorched earth-ish called modest recession that you saw across the board. So I think once the band-aid was ripped off on numbers, at least investor, institutionally speaking, feel like, okay, close is clear. I don't got to look both ways when I cross the road. I think that's one thing. Wait, I
0: want just, so let me take a step back here. So you think that guidance has come down enough for 2023? You think what we saw in Q4 earnings in January into February, that was kind of like a reset for investors a little bit, as far as what expectations were for earnings? I
2: I view that as sort of a rip the bandaid off in terms of what we saw. And I, I think the other thing is that if you look at close rates specifically on enterprise, or even some like we'll call Apple, the type of trajectory guidance they gave, it was based on what they were seeing in that mid-to-late January timeframe, and what we've seen so far in February and through March, specifically on enterprise when it comes to software, and we've seen upticks in terms of the last month and a half, and that's important in terms of I think what's driving Microsoft, what drove Salesforce, even though activist situation sort of post-quarter. What drove some of these cybersecurity names. And then the second component, it goes back to that a lot of these names in terms of the setups, it's just better than feared in terms of what we're seeing play. I mean, look, at this point in the cycle, we just did Asia checks this week. We would have seen cuts in production for iPhone. No doubt. Typically, by this point, it's about seven, eight, nine percent it's maybe 1% to 2%. Now, some of that is pull forward in terms of the, the 68 million iPhones I got lost in the zero COVID. But that's interesting in terms of just some of the Armageddon expectations in terms of what we've seen here. The third thing is, look, I've just talked to a lot of generalists. They're just getting squeezed out left and right of financials. They just, they can't deal watching NCAA worrying about what's going to hit their Twitter, or Bloomberg. And I think that dynamic, in my opinion, this still is going to have legs in terms of some of these big cap tacks, just because more and more the setup. I view it as more of a safety blanket in tech versus what we've seen. You know, obviously after a horrific 2022.
1: Dan Ives and I have been texting over the last week or so, and I have to admit, I've stolen your term and called this the bizarro trade, Dan. Ives, it's true. Because yeah. It has happened so quickly. And I remember talking to you, and you said you were getting inbound interest from folks on the buy side that you hadn't heard from in 18 months, and all of a sudden, Kathy Wood is back on our air, <laughs> taking a little bit of a victory lap saying that, you know, tech is the hot trade again. And I call it bizarro because it comes, what, a week and a half after the failure of tech's biggest bank, Silicon Valley Bank. In terms of, do the fundamentals match up? And I think that's what you're saying, Dan. I can maybe align with Dan Nathan on this. And that I don't know that they're there yet. Um, you take a. Look at Amazon, right, which has moved in conjunction with the rest of big tech. And I go back time and time again to one chart. The chart is AWS. It's cloud growth. It has decelerated massively from a growth rate of somewhere in the 30s and 40% to now the high teens. And there's fears, Dan, that that's not low enough. And that itself is just such a huge indication of enterprise spend across all of tech. And I can't feel like we're out of the woods, tech that is, until. That gets a little bit
2: better. Deirdre, she's the tactician, the maestro when it comes to tech. <laughs> and as a total side note, she's able to pivot topic to topic better than anyone I've seen. She can go, <laughs> Uber, Prop 22. Next thing you know, it's like Amazon Cloud versus Azure.
1: But I steal your terms. You're, you're still the best at writing those note titles.
2: And vice versa. She has a great point in terms of like there's fears like we just haven't gone low enough. And to your point, Dan... In terms of valuations, like, okay, now you're starting to reflect good news relative to even though Fed basically, you know, I'm not in the comments, but essentially handcuffed with raising rates. And now that's going to be bullish with tech. I think more and more investors that I talk to, they're starting to focus more on 24 numbers to give them some sort of sense as to if these are stocks they want to buy. And I think as we get closer into sort of April, May, June, that's another dynamic that's going to start to take place with easier year-over-year comms, cost cutting that then starts to get reflected, which is why your names like Facebook have had such a huge move.
0: I tend to like try to pick apart what, what is now a universal kind of bullish theme as it relates to tech. You just look at the outperformance this year, obviously it underperformed massively last year at its lows. I think the NASDAQ was down maybe 36, 37% or so. And in many ways, large pockets of tech started correcting in late 2021, mid to late 2021. It wasn't until the mega cap tech names joined the party in you know, kind of mid part of 2022, that we really started to see that sort of bloodletting, and so you know, when we look at you know Apple, we look at Microsoft, and these stocks. I mean, technically, they're starting to look better. I'm just again, this is a podcast; we don't have the charts up or anything like that. They look constructive. Look at the move that uh, an Alphabet just had from 90 to where it's trading right now at 105. You're starting to see a little bit, kind of. FOMO, I think. And that's the one area though, Dan, that makes me a little bit nervous because we saw this in Microsoft. Ebo and I were talking about this a lot, kind of late January into February when chat GPT and all the excitement about Bing and what it might mean for productivity tools. And we saw massive market share moves. And all of a sudden now, you know Alphabet was down for the count and it just rallies 15, 16% in a straight line because that's no longer a concern. And so my worry is when you start having these sorts of market cap moves, given so much uncertainty, I don't really think 2023 numbers have been de-risked just yet. I mean, in my opinion, when you look at just how much we've seen guidance come down for 2023, it hasn't been meaningful. And if you look at S&P earnings overall, there's still expected consensus up, like, you know, high single digits, 10% or so. That to me seems really high given what I think has just happened with this mini banking crisis, which there is no consensus that it's over yet, that it increases the likelihood of a recession. And I think a large part Part of the early price action or positive price action we saw this year as predicated on the fact that we were going to At the base case was a soft landing, maybe a no landing. And I think now the base case is maybe soft to a harder landing. That's my personal view. So I'm just curious, where are you on valuation right now? Microsoft and Apple, a bit richer, let's say, than the Alphabet and the Meta. How are you thinking about valuations right now?
2: With a lot of those names, we've always viewed them more some of the parts. There's many investors be like, they just look at straight PE, historical, how do you own these things? Things. I look at Microsoft as one like as more and more what's called 60% of it is essentially what I'll call a cloud story today in the next year and a half that's going to be 70 75 percent. So what's starting to happen with a name like Microsoft is that that valuation is starting to be more reflective of a quote unquote cloud name versus what I'll call a, sort of a hodgepodge in terms of what it's been you know over the last few years and from a valuation perspective, if I look at tech the last five years, it, we're still trading below the mean on a growth basis relative to where we think things are going. But it also goes back to it's your view of where growth is. In other words, like my view is like today, Microsoft, based on our estimates, 45% of their install base for Microsoft has moved to cloud. So if we believe, based on talking to partners, customers, that that's going to 70 75%, I'm going to still bet on Microsoft because that, as a workload perspective, that's going to be a lot of workloads that start to go on. I also think Microsoft is net gaining share from AWS as they get more into their backyard. And that's why I think Nadella, you're starting to see go much more aggressive. I mean, not just between ChatGPT, between Activision. You look at a Nuance acquisition, you're seeing a different step in Redmond than you've seen in the past.
1: Nadella is just on the offense this year. I mean, I think back to about the comment he wants to make Google dance. Okay, he is really firing on all cylinders. But, you know, maybe a broader question, Dan, this flight to safety we've seen in big tech, do you think that in the same way what we've seen throughout this banking crisis is the smaller guys get crushed and this flight to the bigger guys in terms of financials, in terms of banking, is there a similar argument to be made in tech that you want to go to the big tech because they have these fortress-like balance sheets, right? You're talking about Google with over $100 billion in cash cash equivalents versus the smaller tech, right? Because they may not even be profitable. They don't have as much cash on their balance sheets. Do you think that's part of the dynamic that's been playing out over the last week?
2: That is just what I believe is a phenomenal point because I think what's also happening is is that the strong gets stronger. You look at SVB, what that's going to do is take hubris out of the 408, 415 area code, no offense, Deirdre, in 415. But it's like from a VC startup perspective, mm-hmm. you're seeing valuations going to come down significantly. There's no more daddy, Warbucks, godfather banking in terms of SVB. And that's really going to be a benefit for the larger players to get M&A on the cheap. And they're just sitting there in the boardroom with Cabernet waiting for the phone to ring. And ultimately, I think M&A is going to accelerate. And to your point, that's why if you look at specifically in software and cyber, the large cap names have significantly outperformed some of what I'll call like the higher growth, high valuation, like let's say a name like a Zscaler mm-hmm. versus if you look at a Palo Alto. Mm-hmm. If you look at those charts,
0: Deirdre and I have talked a little bit about some of the financial buyers of you know some tech assets. The brothers, and so, yeah, exactly. And so, are you suggesting that you think we're going to see some strategic M and A? And again, you know, do you think that the regulatory environment is right for it? And where would you kind of be focused on what sort of assets in general?
2: Well, first of all, the regulatory, like right now, there's there's basically Game of Thrones versus Con and FTC, and that's all going to take get taken care of when Microsoft ultimately goes to battle for Activision. That's not something just for Microsoft, that's for broader tech. You know, as the Beltway versus big tech if you want to think about it that way. Where I see it all sort of playing out is it's financial buyers, non bravo bravo's obviously been front and center, but you're going to you still have about 800 billion of dry powder out there looking for M&A. And then strategics, it's been long in the tooth to come, and I think strategics from software to cybersecurity to I think some other areas that, that could go after tech is something that's really going to play out over the next three to six months. And I believe, just like we saw in Salesforce, Activision and m a for any short, as we've all known, the last thing you ever want to be is short a quote-unquote tech name that blew up that ultimately could become a strategic asset?
1: I thought it was interesting. I was looking at this today, guys, how the narrative over the last week has been this tech renaissance, right? Or bizarro trade, whatever we want to call it, Dan. One area of tech that has not participated is Chinese tech. I mean, you can pick from a whole host of issues. It's a trade, not an investment. But if it is a trade, it would feel like it would have some momentum behind it and it just hasn't. What do you attribute that to?
0: We spent a lot of time last year. The precedent that was set by so many US multinationals when Russia invaded Ukraine, I think was a really interesting one, right? We saw a lot of companies pull out of Russia and you, you know, there's a whole host of like the sanctions and, and and that and the like here. And when you think right now, as we're recording this, President Xi is in Moscow meeting with President Putin. And, you know, one of the fears, right? We have this kind of ratcheted up. It started with a trade war in 1718, right, with all the tariffs. And then it's kind of moved to a really hot economic war when you think about just what's going on with some of the chip restrictions and, and the like here. And, you know, you say to yourself, OK, well, the stronger the Chinese are in support of the Russians, is that just kind of emboldening them to kind of make some sort of move on Taiwan? And what does that mean, I guess, for our companies? You know, so like when I think about if you're a U.S. investor, you say to yourself, well, there's risk to U.S. multinationals if there's some sort of geopolitical event in China, right? And and Deirdre, you and I have talked about that a little bit. But then on the flip side of that is if you're a Chinese company and we're going to have this sort of tit for tat as far as what our companies are allowed to do there and our access to their consumers, you know, all this, it's like, God, it it doesn't seem, and I hate to use this term because it's something that I think there's plenty of memes on FinTwit about of like some of the jokers like me on CNBC saying, well, it's uninvestable or this or whatever. It's not that it's uninvestable. It's just, there's better places to put your money, right? There's plenty of places in emerging markets where there's cheap tech or there's cheap this and that with, you know, international exposure or maybe exposure to like these emerging middle classes. So I'm just curious, like, Dave, what do you think about that? Because for me, I I feel like, man, you know, we make these decisions all the time, like Alibaba or, you know, Amazon or this and that, whatever. Like no one's forcing you to buy Alibaba or JD or, you know, any of these sorts of things. There's plenty of ways to get that sort of exposure, I guess.
1: And what we've learned over the last few years is that these things are certainly not separate from the government. I mean, even the fact that Beijing and the Communist Party can take these so-called golden shares in companies like Alibaba, that is a huge red flag for American investors because those golden shares give the Chinese Communist Party a lot of power, should they so choose to take it. It's interesting. We've got the TikTok testimony coming up this week. The CEO is going to be talking in front of Congress. And it feels like, you know, in the media, we talk a lot about this bifurcation and rising bilateral tensions. In reality, we've never been so integrated. I mean, our companies, our multinationals, Nike, Starbucks, Tesla, are more integrated in China. Apple, like the biggest one, more integrated in China than ever before. But this is a new development. Chinese companies are increasingly integrated here. It used to be that you couldn't gain traction with the American consumer if you're a Chinese company. To the point where Alibaba wouldn't even try. They just wanted to find people to sell stuff to the Chinese. Now you've got TikTok. You've got Xi'an, which is hugely popular with the younger generation. You've got Timu from Pinduoduo having Super Bowl commercials. This integration is getting tighter, and it'll be interesting to see what lawmakers do or don't do when it comes to ByteDance.
2: Deirdre, exactly. Like The Super Bowl going into Thursday. Is this another sort of pouring gasoline on the fire? What actually happens with TikTok? But look, the irony is people like – companies like, okay, wh- you can no longer be on TikTok, but yet you're on in the, a Chinese chip on an app with – I mean, we you're basically like 90% of your house and work somehow is related to – a China-Taiwan chip. And and that's the irony,
0: right? Interestingly enough, though, our digital companies have no access to Chinese markets for the most part, right? And they just have never been there and for a whole host of reasons. So when you think about that, TikTok is just low-hanging fruit in this kind of economic war that we have right here. And, And I'll bring it back to you because you have been a staunch bull in Apple forever, as long as I've known you, and and also in Tesla. And I think, you know, obviously your fundamental reasons have clearly played out in Apple. I think with Tesla, it's at a new phase here because it really is about Chinese production. It's about Chinese access to their consumers. I wonder, and we just talked about that sort of precedent that was set, right, with U.S. multinationals, is that a worry to you? Because, you know, China is a huge part of the Tesla growth story, less so, you know, for Apple now, right? We have a good sense of kind of where that sits. But as we see U.S. manufacturers think about supply chains as a point of national security at this point, and actually security for their sales going forward, and they diversify away from China, doesn't that make the Chinese less inclined to kind of like go out of their way the way they have with Apple? Apple and Tesla to give them the sort of sweetheart deals and all that sort of stuff. And also the way that their consumers buy, they tend to be very nationalistic. When you think about Apple iPhones, they're, you know, maybe four or five in market share, right? And then also Tesla is probably four or five in market share with EVs in China. So I'm just curious, like how you think about that, Dan.
2: It's a great point. I mean, if you think Apple, let's call it 19, 20% of iPhones in terms of demand are from China, the irony and I'll call it Bizarro, as, as the, or I'll call it Twilight Zone. In the last two years, they've gained about 300 bips in market share in China. Like in all of this, they've gained you know, significant market share in China and combined, they've added about 120 million new iPhones, which is part of, I think, that story. And like my view with China is that there's always going to be that black swan event, but ultimately from a production perspective, look, if I, let's say Cook, in all hands, to me like, we want to get out of China. If the company's sole focus was getting out of China, it would take about two years to get about five to seven percent of production out of China, just to put numbers around it, right? Because, and I always tell people like, when I'm traveling, they're like, "Oh, we shouldn't, Apple shouldn't be able to produce in China." I'm like, look. If you like a 3500 hour iPhone, we should produce them in New Jersey. I
0: like 1000 hour, but it goes to that. They have a 40-some percent gross margin, right? And they have like 90-some percent of the margin of all the entire smartphone business. So when you think about that, you know, all these Android phones are like plastic pieces of junk. You know what I mean? But 85% of the world is using them. And so when you talk about it, at some point, like, listen, if China invades Taiwan— they're not going to have a choice. You know what I mean? Like I'm saying, like all of these U.S. you know companies that are manufacturing that something's going to happen. And, and you could say that's not a particularly strong likelihood, but there's likely to be some sort of provocation in the not so distant future. And, and so to me, at some point, there has to be some sort of discount placed on that, in my opinion, or at least the value of that like future growth stream.
2: I think a lot of people like why they've been even perpetually, you know, extra glass half empty on Apple or Tesla is because that China risk—I mean, even when we talk about Tesla, I and mean, the China numbers came out today for the week, right? The microanalyze, you know, was a positive? You know, this one was positive. But ultimately, in China, for Tesla, I mean, look, they're essentially going through a price war. But that's why we just did the survey to, like, you know, over 500 Chinese EV consumers. Like, would you buy BYD Tesla right now? Basically, post-price cuts, three of four said Tesla. That's why— The price cuts, this is going to be a big argument over the next, I wouldn't say this quarter, but over the next few quarters, where does it go from here? Are there more price cuts? Like, where is that sort of elasticity from a demand perspective? I
1: tend to think that not all the China risk is priced in because things like what happened in Zhengzhou, the riots and the protests, that caught a lot of Investors off guard. And I do think that maybe privately, Tim Cook is freaking out a little bit and trying to figure out how he can diversify. As you say, Dan, he has to do that very privately because it's going to take a lot of time. And so, what do you do? You adopt a China plus one strategy. It's a little bit softer. You're still going to manufacture in China, but you're going to look to other places and slowly build up in other places like Vietnam and India. This thought occurs to me once in a while as well. Is the threat almost neutralized because of how much China needs Apple?
2: As its number two employer, a max iPhone.
1: Well, I think that the risks are not totally priced in because the protests in Zhengzhou can have investors on the back foot. They can creep up unexpectedly. Sometimes I think that the risk is possibly neutralized because of how much China needs Apple. Apple needs China, China needs Apple. So they need each other the same. So when you've seen other issues blow up like Huawei, right, when they were banned in the US, everyone thought, are they gonna retaliate? Who, what can they do to retaliate? Well, the obvious answer is Apple, but they never do. Because to your point as well, Dan, they're so dependent, there's the employment piece of it, but there's also just the consumer love for iPhones, which has only grown over the last few years.
2: Anyone that's been in China, it's like the pedestal that Apple and Tesla are put within country that that's where their main production, it's a huge source of pride for the Chinese in terms of Beijing. And that's going back to her sort of spiderweb it is very complex in terms of some of the dynamics.
0: Well, let's talk about Tesla here. This is one that, again, I just mentioned before, you've been a staunch bull on. There's some data out today. It looks like from, what, a third-party research company or something, just talking about China's sales pretty good. And we know that they had that kind of price cut in late December, right, of 2022. And there was another price cut on some of their lower-end models. And so they kind of missed some um, sales last quarter. But this data is suggesting they're picking it back up. But these are going to be lower margins. So the stock's up 7%. It had sold off, I think, from 225 down to like 165. Here we are. It's Tuesday afternoon into the close. It's about 197 here. Are you surprised that the stock's reacting to this? We know at the end of the quarter, we're going to have at least the monthly data, right? And they don't break them down. Do they, Dan? Um, Do they break it down not by region, but just total, total units? Yeah. So I'm just, talk to me like where you are with the stock and, and in some ways when the stock was coming in hard and almost filling in its gap from January from earnings. Did that make you a little nervous? Did you think that the wheels were coming off the bus a little bit here?
2: I mean, I was nervous. I was more nervous with the Twitter stuff with Musk rather than the fun, just because that became a. I've seen you on Tech Check. I've seen you on CNBC
0: and you were actually super critical of all of the twitter stuff for all of last year I mean into this year but remain super bullish on tesla
2: because i feel like that was a separate non-fundamental issue that because of the complexity of selling stock and overhang and pr issues and everything else disruption but that's faded and ultimately since the price cut you've really seen the stock you know take off i think look in my opinion it's at a point now where like for this quarter We feel like the actual numbers will be probably close to potentially ahead of where the street is. But the big question is from a margin perspective, can you keep margins above where the street is? Because that's been Tesla's unique ability because of their unique model and scale and scope that they're able to do that. But there's a hypersensitivity, not just to units, but margins. Because then once you start to get into a price war in China, that opens up a sort of Pandora's box. So really
0: quickly on that, and and again, I mean, what is the condition in which they might raise prices again? Margins last year, gross margins, 25.5-ish percent or so, expected to be 22.14 this year, okay? What if there is a recession, a global recession? Prices of Teslas are only going to go lower, the margins will go lower, right? And if this is an earnings leverage story, if it's a margin story, especially relative to its peers, like at some point, how do you kind of assign the right valuation? And why do you think that with increased competition, not just in China from, you know, a dozen EV makers, but also from
2: Detroit, from
0: Germany, from Japan, from korea why do you think that they actually will be able to expand their margins once again i mean like that's kind of like part of one of the reasons why i've been really bearish on the story the one thing that i learned long time ago about gross stocks is when earnings estimates come down and margins come down and you're in the middle of a price war that's when you want to be selling stocks ahead of that and right now i'm looking at 2023 consensus for Tesla, and I'm looking at down 2% year over year, which if there is a recession and there is further geopolitical issues, earnings are going down for this company.
2: You raise great points. I think for them, the scale and scope, if you look at what they've done in Austin, you look what they've been able to do in China, and, and now Berlin's starting to ramp. But look, their biggest advantage is that they were years ahead of any other automaker. They got scale and scope that's unmatched. And look at Rivian. I mean, Rivian... I mean where they they'll probably blame their dog ate the homework something else in terms of you know different issues you see how hard it is to me it's all about battery costs in other words if they could get battery costs and that's right now the big driver if they could get that down 25 30% that was big focus down in Austin even as margin in a quote unquote recession you'll be able to sort of have a margins with a two in front of it and I think that's the big variable that they're focused on internally within Tesla.
1: Another point to make about Tesla is that, and this is why, Dan, to answer your question, maybe they could get margins back up or maybe it's just relative to the rest of the industry as well as they seem to take crises and shortages and things a lot better than the other automakers. I go back to during the pandemic when it was really hard to get chips and that just stopped a lot of the automakers in their tracks. Tesla, because it has the technology side of things too, were able to adjust and continue to produce at levels that weren't as bad as the other ones. Dan, did you say that there was some kind of survey that Chinese people want Teslas over BYDs and Neos?
2: We did a survey in China. To us, because, Dan, I'm just trying to give you an example. Like, look, 550 people, you take... But we're always trying to do things like that to just give us sanity and make sure th- we're not missing things. Just so you understand, even though, I, quote, unquote, like quote-unquote, like, bullish and our view and this, that... We have to make sure that things don't change in terms of whether it's sentiment, whether it's national, because that, if you said to me, like, what's the biggest risk to Tesla? Forget like Mac or the the, U. the biggest risk is exactly what you talk about. China, hearts and lungs, all of a sudden, price wars that more nationalistic.
1: You ask consumers that question, right? Have you asked government officials that question?
2: They wouldn't return the calls. Deirdre's right, that's the biggest variable.
1: I'm just saying because I remember when I lived in China, everyone wanted to drive a Mercedes, right? That was kind of the government vehicle. But if the government decides to drive BYDs and NEOs there, I think that has an effect on consumer sentiment also. And they're huge buyers.
2: When they had like safety issues within China, different province, I mean, Deirdre is better live living there, but it's like those things were huge with in terms of in the stock and sentiment, And for us, a lot of it was like discovery missions, right? Because when when things, from our perspective, things will come up that we basically like have to call our people on the ground. Because that's the thing with Tesla. China more and more from production as well as demand story, you know, that's become a big part of the Tesla story.
0: All right, Dan, before we let you get out of here, you got to talk to us here a little bit. We just said the NASDAQ's up 16 or so percent here in the face of what you know was like an emerging global kind of banking crisis. We're not saying there was anything systemic, but there was some extraordinary moves, obviously taken by the Swiss to shore up Credit Suisse and our banking sector, the way we were focused on the regionals. And none of us know whether this could spread to some of the larger banks. But I think some of the strategy pieces that I've read this week and some of my own scar tissue from the financial crisis and we all have it is like there's not generally sort of one-off situations and I guess I would just put it in the context no matter what just happened here we know that even with rates coming in the cost of capital that was the story about valuations on tech in particular for 2022 as rates were going higher it was going up now when you overlay all of the deposit insurance and the increase you know like there's going to be increased regulatory it's going to be more expensive and all that sort of stuff at some point that's got a way on growth here in the U.S. right and so like I suspect we're going to see A stagflationary sort of environment. At some point, it's going to become evident in 2023. So my question to you is: How does like high growth, high valuation tech, your universe, and you cover almost 50 names? How does it perform in in that environment? And you know, because like I'm looking again, I'm looking at this NDX chart, the Nasdaq 100, and I know those like we just talked about six or seven of those names, and they make up almost 50 percent of the weight of that. This thing looks like it wants to party, and I'm shorted. Okay, and it's like up my you know what right now. Now, it doesn't feel particularly great. But when I think
2: about the macro outlook that I have, I'm like, it's not good for stocks. And it's not good for valuation. See, what I like about this environment is that it's become more of a stock picker's environment from a tech perspective. Yeah. Last year, what was so frustrating for me is that it didn't matter our checks or quarter. It's all about the 10 years. That, now, it's like a stock picker's market, which even if you look at cybersecurity, like look at CrowdStrike versus e look at Datadog versus Snowflake, look at... I believe it becomes more of a stock picker's market. You talk about some of the froth, momentum, that could clearly come off. You know, As we go into the, this next earnings season, you could see a lot of sort of volatility in some of these things. But I view that as more finally now after just a nightmare in Elm Street 2022 – with the Fed basically handcuffed despite whatever, hawkish pause, whatever you want to call it, what ends up happening. Now it's more of a stock pickers market. And like, look, Deirdre talks to all these management teams all the time. And obviously I do it more behind the scenes. Never underestimate how bad a management team is, EG Lyft. Never overestimate how good a management team is, Tactician, Nadella, Cook, you know, and obviously NVIDIA, Magenta. So I'm just, as a example.
1: I'm just looking at three names here. Harvana, Coinbase, Open Door. What's going on here? Up 80% in the last three months, 140%, 50%. Dan, I understand the flight to safety. These are not safety plays. These are, I don't wanna say.
2: That's why you have to be able, which you guys do so well here, Dan. It's like, you have to be able to decipher what's froth, sell into the strength, versus maybe other opportunities in certain, in software and cyber. But I think you fade the froth and then you wait for this volatility via cash in the sidelines. And then ultimately, that's just going to create more opportunities post-earnings
0: that is great advice and the point about being a stock picker in 2023 versus 2022 and again 2022 was the first down year that we had since 2018 and that was you know kind of a funky year because of the late year sell off it didn't really feel fundamental and i just thought it was interesting debo to your point is like the calendar turned in january and then the hardest hit stuff started rallying it was up you know 20 30% you know in we in a matter of weeks right and these were small market cap companies for the most part and it was easy to kind of push around and they weren't really trading on fundamentals. And then it really was, you No, know, I'm looking at Apple, it's up 22% of the year. I'm looking at Microsoft, it's up 14% of the year. I'm looking at Google up 18%, Amazon up nearly 20%. These are real market cap companies. These are trillion dollar market cap companies. And so for me to sit here and say, Texas sale My fact set machine screen is telling me the exact opposite, okay? And so it's like sometimes, you know, maybe you just don't fight the trend a little bit. And I've mentioned this now twice on the podcast here. The technicals are lining up. Where I'm getting screwed up is kind of the macro. And and so sometimes maybe you just have to take it down a notch.
2: Our Achilles heel sometimes is like when we're looking at these names, it tends to be more glass half full. Last year was obviously a disaster because to your point, it's just like – not to read in the room in terms of the macro, but I do believe now it's more of a stock picker's market for tech. All
0: right. Well, listen, Debo. I, you know, I had to take your tech check guy here, Dan Ives. This was a great conversation. I'm so glad that you could join us too here. And I got to say, Dan, say hi to my boy Pactor. I know you're heading out to Wedbush's headquarters in LA right after we get out of here. He's a great dude here. So thank you guys both for joining us. It was a really fun conversation on public tech. You've had a really nice call on, on a lot of these big tech names, Dan. We hope you'll come back and also stick around people when i come back david steinberg ceo co-founder of zeta global David Steinberg, he is the co-founder and CEO of Zeta Global. David, welcome back to OK Computer.
3: Dan, lovely to be welcomed. You and I had a great
0: conversation late last year, and we were talking about Zeta. We were talking about kind of your whole entrepreneurial arc and all the companies that you founded. And Zeta is really, really interesting to me because just to kind of take a step back, you and I met, I think, a little over six years ago, and you were explaining to me what Zeta did. You were a private company back then, and you used the term AI a bunch at a time where a lot of tech founders, entrepreneurs were not actually leaning into that. It's been an absolute craze over the last, let's call it six months to a year. And there's been different generative AIs that have caught different parts of like the tech community really in a manner. But I kind of said to myself, I got to get David back here because we got to talk a little bit about why it was so important when you founded Zeta. And you did a great job on the last pod talking about really what is AI and how is it applied to different businesses and how it's going to be disruptive. So I want to get all that. I want to actually also hit, we got a little bit of a banking crisis here. Um, I didn't you are, notice. Yeah, yeah. You are a chairman of an investment fund and you make a lot of investments in private tech. And I want to talk about how that's kind of affected you a little bit. So I want to hit all that. And by the way, Zeta put up a really nice beat and raise. I think it was last month or so. And I want to talk about some of the trends and some of the kind of macro environment and how that's affecting you, because it seems like you guys are doing okay. Let's set the stage why AI has been so important to Zeta. And then we'll get to kind of the current, Craze and the environment, a little bit, and how that's affecting you. But let's take a step back. Let's go back five, six years or so. And so, when you and John Scully founded this company, why was AI going to be so important to Zeta and how you were going to disrupt, I guess, traditional marketing?
3: So, when John and I founded Zeta, it was actually 15 years ago, and AI was sort of the thing of science fiction. But about seven years ago, we made a major pivot into AI. So, the founding vision was how to build a platform and a data ecosystem that could do everything a marketer needed in one place. We had looked at it, and the average marketer needed 17 vendors to run their marketing between data, analytics, activation, CRM, and our goal was to put it into one platform. We started with this premise that opted-in permission-based data was going to be a differentiator and automation was going to be key to the ability to do all of those things in one place effectively. Now, it started with automation. Then it became deep learning. Then it became machine learning. Then everybody started using the vernacular AI. We started using it about seven years ago. It's obviously a bit of a craze today. We would say the market is coming to us, not the other way around. In fact, we have one of the largest patent portfolios around artificial intelligence of almost any company at this point because we've been focused on it for so long. But the real mission was to be able to effectively ingest enough signals about an individual that you could figure out what they're going to do next. And because of the way we built our data architecture and the number of platforms that we power – we ingest about a trillion marketing signals a day. It would just be, think of the number of people you would need to process a trillion marketing signals. So we use AI for that. So when you're
0: out there and it's not you selling this platform anymore, I mean, what are some
3: of like the cost benefits? And these are large retailers. Like give us a sense of some of the customers. To put it in perspective, 34% of the Fortune 100 use Zeta. Uh, for their marketing. And we have over a 1,000 global enterprise clients, the vast majority of which are in the Fortune 2000. What we're really focusing on is marketing efficiency. So Forrester put out a great study a few years ago that showed that we have a 50% greater efficiency with your marketing if you use the Zeta marketing platform than if you do not. So If you go out into the marketplace and say, hey, listen, we'll help you cut your marketing cost in half, that's a very good message nowadays. It's resonating. And the way we do it is one of the greatest quotes in marketing. Most people don't realize it was said by Mr. Woolworth, which you can still go by the Woolworth building in New York City today. Mr. Woolworth, who ran the five and dime store, said, I know that 50% of my marketing is a waste, but I don't know which half. Right? Our goal by understanding what people are gonna do next. Put in perspective, we have over 240 million people in America alone who have opted into our data cloud. So we're able to say that this person is actively in market for our clients' products, and because we know who they are individually, we can say they'll be credit approved. So by removing the people who are not actively in market or won't be approved for their products, you're able to remove 50% of the potential marketing cost even before you launch.
0: When you think about that in the environment that we're in right now and you're seeing all sorts of marketing spend, you know what I mean? Being contemplated in a macro environment where it's been like this for years now. COVID was probably the first real test of this. And so if you can kind of demonstrate the sort of ROI that your platform is doing, then you basically have this amazing ability to kind of build on top of that. I find that super interesting. But when I think about how you've been talking Talking about you said machine learning and you said that, you know, you really started using the term AI six or seven years ago. There's a lot of vaporware out there, right? There's a lot of companies, there's a lot of copycats. And I saw you on CNBC actually. It was a great hit probably a few weeks ago. It was in like the height of the craze, at least in public markets, when we were seeing big market cap shifts in Microsoft and Google and some other names out there. And I thought it was interesting that you kind of laid it out there. You guys have had a chat bot at Zeta. There's gonna be a lot of people who start talking about these things. They're not going to be particularly yeah. great. They're not going to be using the sorts of technology
3: and the patents that you guys have. So talk to me how yours is differentiated. Well, first of all, it's real. I mean, I, I sort of laugh. We go into a lot of these RFPs and you know, the stuff that people talk about versus what they can deliver are very, very different things. So one of the things we're most proud of, and we said this on our most recent earnings call, is last year we won 52% of the RFPs we got invited to participate in. Put it in perspective, an average of 17 companies were invited to each of those RFPs. So that's a pretty disproportionate share. And in 100% of the cases, we're beating Salesforce, Oracle, Adobe, or other very large platforms. So we're very proud of the technology we've built. In fact, last year... If you look at the marketing automation report for Forrester, we are the furthest to the right and the highest in their leaders category. And that's based on how our clients talk about our technology. One of the things we've done really differently is when we architected our platform, we put AI and data as native to the application layer. So everybody else who's even developing AI today, it's a step out of the platform. So think you've got to do a data dip out of the platform into the AI, which then has to ingest data. One of the things that we should talk about today is how AI is important, but the data that's ingested into it is more important. And if you think about why, you know, ChatGPT is really interesting, they're effectively screen scraping the entire internet every day. If you look at a product we did in partnership with OpenAI, we call it chatbot Zeta. And you can go to chatbotzeta.com and put your information in. And what you'll find is we've merged our entire data cloud into a closed mm-hmm. open AI ecosystem. So you can get into our data using that AI, not just the open data on the internet. When you
0: mentioned that you partnered with OpenAI, and so obviously the, the one that's gotten the most attention is their Microsoft partnership. With yeah, well, We're Bing, not
3: quite Microsoft size yet. No, so they, not yet, <laughs>
0: but we're working on it here. So back in January when Microsoft announced that new investment. It was GPT 3 at the time, so they were basically trying to demonstrate to the market that Bing, that we had all pretty much forgotten about for a very long time, was going to be new. It was going to be on the scene. It was going to be basically for the first time competing with Google, which we know dominates search, right? uh, Dominates
3: digital marketing. Digital marketing in
0: every way, shape, or form. And, you know, it got a huge market cap boost, right? When they made their demonstration about how Bing was going to be using GPT to come up with a you know a greater texture of search. And at the time, Google, Alphabet, you know sold off like $100 billion in market cap. And I was just curious, what was your reaction? You are very much in tune. You get public markets. You also get emerging technology and how it can be disruptive to incumbents. What was your original takeaway on that?
3: Because to me, that was extraordinary. Markets overreact, right? They overreact often. And this was a very good case of it. Interestingly enough, I think that the open AI, especially 4.0 relationship for Microsoft, is going to be more valuable inside of their office suite than it might be inside of search. I mean, they're both going to be interesting. But if you think about it, you and I, who are of similar age, grew up in a world where when we started getting into some of these office tools, I used the write a business letter form. Yeah. Write a business plan PowerPoint, right? All of that stuff. Now it's going to ask you five questions. It's going to write the business plan for you, right? It's going to write the business letter for you. It's no longer going to be a form. That's going to be very interesting and very differentiated. As it relates to Google, I think it's going to be a long time before Bing can really make a dent into their search function that's a really
0: great point because when you think about these two companies okay so google obviously search digital marketing all this but they have productivity suites, like, you know, like today like, there was
3: a big article that now they're going to quote unquote hit back against Microsoft. And they will. I, but they've maybe, been giving it away free forever. Nobody cares. Well, that, well and that's a great point. I but don't I, mean I, that. I mean, I'm a huge Google fan. i But, I'm but just it saying- might be
0: an opportunity to kind of weaken their major competitor, which would be Microsoft with Office, because if they, ha- if they are able to demonstrate their AI across their productivity tools and it's cheaper than than let's say Microsoft. You know this. You know, we're sitting in, in an office filled with tech startups, VC backed tech startups, and all of them use Google products for Listen, the most I'm, part. I,
3: and as do my kids. Yeah. But I remember the day that Google bought the Sun office suite. Like that's how they yeah. built this, right? And everybody probably sold Microsoft, if you look at that day, it probably sold off dramatically, right? Listen, Microsoft has built one of the world's most interesting companies, as has Google, right? You're talking about two juggernauts who are now sort of coming into each other's space, which they've always antidotally hit each other, right? Microsoft tried to make phones work, they couldn't. You know, Google brilliantly bought Motorola and bought Android, spun out the hardware business, kept the 10,000 patents. I mean, everything these companies have done for many, many years has been brilliant. I don't think they're going to weaken each other's core businesses anytime soon. That's a great perspective. I, I got to tell you,
0: because you know, again, you know where I live on CNBC, yeah, it's of Hot Take Central, and this and that or whatever. And there's, you know, you can find somebody to come on and say Google's done or Microsoft's yeah, done. You know, so- like at, at any given moment, I think that's a very sober taken away. And I'm just curious because, again, you've been building companies, you've been taking on incumbents, you've been doing that for thirty years almost. You know, I'm just curious. It's over. Is, over thirty years, yeah, I know. You know, now I, officially, I just, really, I, I didn't really want to age you. I David. know, thank you. Um, but when you think about that, I and, was twenty. But when we I started. also, and, and this is like a segue, a little bit to what happened with SVB and everything oh, like yeah. that. Think about the way narratives move around right now, and you're able to kind of take a step back a little bit and just say, "Listen, this is this is this hot take over here. This is what these people are saying on Twitter over here. This is what market caps are moving around." But if we we're going to take some of the immediacy and just the interest of having something happen so quickly based on something that we know is going to
3: take quarters, if not years to play out. You're not just that, you're not that jazzed up right now. Well, I've been doing this for a long time, right? So the next big thing will be the next big thing. Not to quote Bill Gates and to probably paraphrase him, less happens in two years than you think, and more happens in five years than you think, right? And we've seen that again and again and again. If you think about what's happening between Microsoft Google, it pales in comparison to what happened between Apple and Facebook, right? So Apple eliminates their tracking mechanism for the mobile ecosystem, their IDFA, and all mobile-focused marketing companies in the United States lost the feedback loop for attribution for their, attrib- for their models. So all of a sudden, their algorithms were broken, at least temporarily. They're trying to rebuild them. Because they just didn't have a feedback loop. And that feedback loop is mission critical to algorithms getting smarter.
0: Let's talk about the quarter that you just reported because, again, I look at hundreds of companies that are reporting earnings. I often have to kind of have some quick opinions about them if I'm sitting on the desk at Fast Money, but we talk about them the next day in our pod. And I did not see too many companies report nearly 30% year-over-year revenue growth. You guys did that. You also had nearly 14% customer growth in that quarter, and then you were able to guide up for the full year here. What's going on in your slice of this very innovative technology? You are obviously demonstrating the value for your customers and what your platform's able to do. This comes at a time, and I remember seeing this quarter at a time where, you know, we were seeing beats of already guided down quarters, right? And some kind of like modest kind of guidance. And and the stocks were not performing particularly well on that. And and that was in this like raging bull market in January and early February. Things have kind of sobered down a little bit. What's going on that you guys were able to put up those sorts of numbers?
3: Well, first of all, we've been public now for just over seven quarters. This is, I believe, our eighth quarter as a public company. And we have beat and raised in seven quarters in a row. So when we beat the fourth quarter by another 9% above our range, and far more than that on the bottom line, we, uh, we, we had an incredibly profitable year last year where we're meaningfully free cash flow positive and in a pretty unique position, I think people thought that was good. I think we continue to be confusing because we do so many things, right? A lot of companies like to say, we're this plus this, we're, we're you know, four or five different things together, which I think has created some confusion on Wall Street. So even though we continue to beat and raise, I think that confusion continues to hurt us a little bit. Our goal is to continue to beat be and rate let's further unconfuse this this thing because because
0: <laughs> i'm looking at the the press release okay so direct platform revenue reached 100 basically 135 million we just talked about 175 million was the total revenue so that's about 77% of just the for revenue the quarter. for yep. that quarter and that grew 31.6 what is that direct platform revenue
3: we operate on a direct platform which which effectively just to really simplify it everything we do from a marketing perspective goes directly through the Zeta marketing platform other than social media marketing. When we're working with the large social media companies, we don't control their ecosystems, nor do we want to, right? So that slice of our revenue is at a lower gross margin, the off-platform stuff. To put it in perspective, three years ago, I think we were closer to 50-50, on-platform, off-platform. Now we're closer to 80-20. We're not quite there yet. And that is how we, I have to say very carefully, I'm sorry, we lowered our cost of goods sold by 500 basis points over that same period of time as a company. Let's hit this before we get out of here because this is, I think, top of mind. No matter like whether you're an investor, whether
0: you're an operator. I mean, what what just happened within the banking system here, and actually in Europe, obviously too. Here, what is your take? Because this was a very different, and, and I'm not saying it in past tense, other than the fact that it just happened over the last couple of weeks. I kind of feel like we're or, probably. Four hours. I feel like we, <laughs> yeah, right. I, well, I mean, as you and I are recording this, this is Monday into the close. You know. First Republic, which is a bank that if you talk to anybody, like, this was a great banking institution, whether you're a customer, people who worked there. The stock is down 50%-ish right now into the close. It's down 80-some percent on the year. It's looking like the equity is going to be a zero. So we've had basically five banks in the U.S. here see their equity go to zero in just a matter of a couple of weeks. And I'm just curious because, again, you've operated businesses and raging bull markets yes. in great times. You've done it through very difficult times. Um, what does this feel like to you? So for listeners here who are maybe like kind of this is their first financial crisis, if you will, what does this feel like to you? Is this on a scale of one to 2008, nine?
3: Is it a two? Is it a three? I think How bad this is going to be is still to be determined. What I would tell you is, you know, the stress test put on the largest banks in this country that everybody was complaining about for years, thank goodness for them, right? Because now we're in a circumstance where the largest banks are trying to help the smaller banks as they get massive windfalls of deposits, right? The government stepped in. I think, listen, had they not, stepped in for Silicon Valley Bank, this was not just a traditional regional bank, right? 44% of all tech companies in the country used it and 50%, 5-0 of all venture funds used it. So if they hadn't stepped in, I believe we would have seen technology set back in this country by almost 20 years. And I will point out that technology is the largest driver of our GDP growth over the last 30 years, whether it's your phone, the internet, computers whatever it is so without those things our productivity does not go up our gdp does not grow where it is so we were very fortunate that calm heads prevailed and stepped in there. Let's take a step back here because I could take the other side of that, okay? And I could How? say, well, because
0: you could <laughs> say that the moral hazard that's just been created by backstopping all of those deposits, okay, is just something that we will continue to kick the can down the road, which is what we really did in 08 and 09 with all of you know the tarps and the talfs and the this and that or whatever. And you make a great point of all the kicking and screaming about all the bank regulation. You could go back to covid if we did not have the sort of regulatory infrastructure in place we would have had major financial institutions fail then and that's one of the reasons why the fed and the treasury and Congress and all the powers that be just flooded the zone with monetary and fiscal stimulus, and we did not have any major financial institutions fail. All that being said, look at the situation that we're in right now. Let's just say hundreds of VC-backed companies that had deposits at Silicon Valley Bank,
3: or thousands. Well, most of the jobs in this country are created by small businesses. A disproportionate percentage of them are created by tech companies. So, you know, listen- I, I Well, under- tech
0: in general, though, is a low single-digit employer within not, our country. Not
3: if you go out to the next two circumferences, to their vendors, to okay, their yep, partners, no to everybody they're working with. And then when you factor in GDP growth, I don't know how you can argue that your our GDP is, grows over the last 30 years without a computer, without the internet, without radar, without the iPhone, right? All of that- came out of the tech ecosystem, all of which, interestingly enough, were created in the United States. It's just interesting that, you know,
0: right now the powers that be, and I'm doing that in kind of air quotes here, yeah. you know, they, I they, can see they've decided, yes, the listener cannot, um, <laughs> that they've decided to do this so quickly because again, if you're taking a page out of the 2008 playbook, literally to the week is when Bear Stearns was bought up, in, you know, a uh, forced sale to JP Morgan 15 years ago. And when you think about it, a lot of people thought we ring-fenced stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah, like this was in we March of April. By the way,
3: I think a lot of people look at the Lehman failure as a major catastrophe in this country because of how cross-collateralized they were. Listen, once again, this is hypothetical. You can argue it either way. I'm on the side of the government stepped in at the right time. Now, when you talk about moral hazards, guess what? The equity went to zero. Everybody who was investing in that bank lost everything. I would not want to have been the former manager of that bank. I'm not sure if you looked at what the CFO of Silicon Valley Bank did in the job prior to that. Interesting uh, career. At the end of the day, you know, you're talking about there were a number of things that went down very negatively. And I think the government was in some ways thoughtful of that, right? They they didn't say we're going to save the equity. They didn't say, we're going to help management. They said, we're here to protect our technology industry. And, you know, listen, they they set up a fund to do it for other regional banks. And you've got a circumstance right now where, in my opinion, got a lot of people selling a lot of bank stocks, whether they are in possession of those shares or not. And they are then – creating a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? So if you have money in a bank. Just so you know,
0: no different than all the VCs that told their portfolio companies to pull their money out of Silicon Valley. Oh, you couldn't get it out
3: because by the time, so I lived, so in our investment fund, we have, you know, I don't know, 20 plus active investments plus fund-to-fund stuff and fortunately at Zeta, we had, I can't say no exposure because I don't know if we had any clients yeah. who banked there, but we had no banking relationship with SVV and they were not a client of ours. And at the fund that I'm chairman of, Cavus Investment Corp., we don't bank and have never banked with SVB. but many of the companies we have invested in had meaningful dollars. Great. By the way, back to your original original comment. This is a great story. You said, we have a generation of people who have no idea about this. I have a CEO in one company. I won't name who he is for very obvious reasons. One of the most brilliant entrepreneurs I've ever known. Literally, I sent them a message on Wednesday saying, are you seeing what's going on with SVB? Do we have any money there? They had effectively all their money there, the vast majority of it. And we're talking a lot of money like well into the nine figures. And I was like, we need to get that money out. There's a run on the bank. The CEO of that company's response was, what is a run on a bank? And I had to explain to him, and once again, this guy is a genius. He is a brilliant individual. He just has never seen it. I had to explain, well, banks don't have all of the cash on hand that they need for depositors. And when depositors start withdrawing all their money, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that puts the bank under, which we call a, quote, run on the bank, end quote. But you've got a generation of executives who have never seen a rising interest rate environment. They've never seen a downturn. And by the way, these people are running multi-billion dollar companies. And... For better or worse, you know, I started my first company in 1991, which was the Great Recession of its day. Then I had 98, 99. Then you had a quick one in 2003. Then you had 2007, 2008, which was a catastrophe. Then you had COVID, which was a catastrophe till it wasn't. And now you have this, right? Calm heads prevail. Pendulums swing hard and very rarely end up in the middle. I think that we're going to see more pain In the regional banking ecosystem before it turns around, what I've read is this type of a thing, even from a bailout, takes three weeks to process. And I think you've got a lot of individuals making a lot of money betting against these regional banks right now, which then scares their depositors. And it's creating, you know, opportunity yeah. for them.
0: Honestly, that's great perspective from somebody who's seen it all—not all, um, well, not all. <laughs> no, but seen the different cycles. And you managed through them as an operator.
3: You've well, obviously some, done by it the way, as an sometimes investor poorly. too. Like, no, like two thousand seven, two thousand eight. No, I managed. Very poor. Of course. But those were things, again, this is what's really important
0: I think about right now and about analogs and being a student of history is like that was not something anybody saw coming. And, and, And so right now when I think about what's
3: different, that was leverage. That was credit risk. That was a whole host. Also had a mortgage crisis, which touched the vast majority of individuals in the United States. The vast majority of individuals in the United States are not being touched by some of these regional bank issues, which is not to say many people aren't. But you know, listen: B of A, Citi, JPM, Wells Fargo, Goldman, Morgan Stanley are very, very strong, right? And and they still have the vast majority of. Of the deposits. No doubt about it. But uh,
0: what I'll say is this I think that all of these um, deposits that are coming out of regional banks going into those um, banks, okay, so so literally like creating bigger. Too big or too fail. Okay? Well, which like will, if by you the way, that, lower
3: interest rates.
0: Well, it might, <laughs> but it will also make our financial system, I think, far more regulated. The cost of capital will go that much higher. Well, I think the regulatory costs are going to be passed on to businesses and to individuals. Well, They're going to look like regulated institutions. And I'll just say one I don't last agree. Thing. I don't agree with that. You don't? But but, okay. I, yeah, but, yeah. Yeah. but, well, what I will say this is that... If all of these regionals had this issue with these mismatched maturities, there's no doubt in my mind that all of those names that you just mentioned are going to have losses if they're unable to hedge that sort of interest rate risk because for for the same
3: reasons why SVB didn't and maybe. There's a little bit of a difference, right? So if you look at SVB, which I'm obviously very familiar with at this point, the vast majority of their initial problem came from the fact they took in far more deposits and they had nobody borrowing any money. So they needed to convert that cash into some type of an income stream, and they started buying large blocks of bonds at 1.8%. We all know what happens to 1.8% bonds when the rate goes to four or 5%, pick a, pick a number, right? And they had not written down the value of those bonds until very, very recently, why they chose right, to Right, no, it. but my point is that they weren't, no, no, hedging, they weren't
0: hedging that interest rate Correct. risk. Correct,
3: the difference right. is the stress tests on most of the large banks, look at those assets on a real-time basis, and they have to write them down in real time. They couldn't have waited a year. They have to write them down every month in some cases, let alone quarterly. So I, I do think, back to what I said originally, I wish we had done the stress test to the 100 top banks in this country, not just the five top banks. Yes, we might have grown a little slower, but by the way, the byproduct of that is the Fed wouldn't be raising interest rates as fast as it's raising it, which we could we could talk about whether I agree with that or not on another occasion. I don't think, and I'm not of the opinion, that our banks become regulated industries because they're already under the stress test. What I think will happen is I think they will begin to extrapolate or I hope they begin to extrapolate the stress tests to the top 100 banks in this country versus the top five banks in this country or 10 or seven or whatever, whatever it is. And I think that that will be healthy for the banks because yes, if it's too big to fail, then we're gonna have to bail it out if it has a problem. But if we make sure that it's strong by doing stress tests, I think we're going to be better off.
0: The only thing that I would say about that is that if this situation slows growth meaningfully because the cost of capital and lending slows down, then we're going to have a slower economy. We're going to have housing come in. We're going to have the higher cost of capital is going to work its way through the system. And that was one of the issues why this kind of happened so quickly. And so on the other side of that, for the major money center banks and the large investment banks are going to be defaults and it's going to be potentially a credit cycle. So that's the one issue that I would say is that people right now, I'm looking at the S&P up nearly 1% when I'm seeing the problem child of the weekend or two problem childs. Credit Suisse, basically equity gets written down to zero and First Republic is getting cut in half despite the fact that we have the major money center banks that just loaned them basically $30 billion in deposits for 120 days and no one cares, right? So to me I, I'm just what, what I'm saying is if I'm Looking at 08, and I'm saying to myself, there are no financial crises like in just in a vacuum, meaning like as
3: a one off. Yeah, there's right? no question there will be ripple effects from this. I actually think it's going to be worse in some ways than you even stay on some fronts, meaning I think that access to capital is going to become very scarce, not just cost of capital, which, of course, if you look at the tech ecosystem, I mean, whether they saved the people who were in Silicon Valley Bank or not, there's nobody to replace them as it relates to the tech ecosystem and nobody has even bothered to buy the assets. That's how bad it was. I was shocked. I thought once the government backstopped it, one of the larger, you know, I don't know if it's Truist or PNC or KeyBank. I thought somebody would buy the assets to pick up the 6,000 people who have been doing this for years. Nobody, even with the backstop, has bought it. You know why? Because they remember uh, yeah, of course. They remember Bank America
0: buying Countrywide in 2007. So like Jamie Dimon's like, he's got his hands in his back pocket. He's like, if you want to call me, I got my earpods in and I'll give you some advice, but I'm not buying this no, stuff. You know I, listen, what I mean? But, so.
3: so I think there's going to be a scarcity – Of capital, especially in the tech startup ecosystem, which is going to become a problem. And listen, cost of capital will continue to go up in a rising interest rate environment, and this won't help, right? We've seen cost of capital go up dramatically just with the Fed raising rates as they try to control inflation. I personally think the Fed has been maybe – Slightly overly aggressive from a time frame perspective, but that's my opinion. I'm, you know, I'm I'm an economist by training, which means if you put a hundred of us in a room, ninety nine of us will have different opinions. I do think that this will be contained to regional banks, and I think we will get through this one much better than we got through 2007, 2008. I certainly hope so too. So David Steinberg, I'm glad that you have a business that helps quantify
0: how you are saving your customers' money in a difficult environment there. So it was great to get kind of your thoughts on just kind of this new AI craze, something that you guys have been on for a while, what's going on over there at Zeta. I really enjoyed our conversation
3: about this banking crisis and I hope you will come back very soon. Dan, I will come back whenever you acquiesce to wanting me. Thanks, David. Thanks, Dan. If you like what you heard, make sure to hit follow
0: and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. We also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com.